the Holy Gospel according to John, the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of, of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord. My well, be seated. We are on the second day of the second Sunday of Christmas, I believe this is uh, the commemoration of nine words a leap and if the song is to be believed. Um, it's, a, it's always an interesting Sunday for me because it's a Sunday where, first of all, most pastors take off because they're done with Christmas. And so that means those of us who run around and preach other places can always be pretty, rest, be pretty assured that we're going to have a place to preach. In seminary, I used to call that we eat lunch Sunday. Um, so it's all, the second Sunday of Christmas is always a joyful Sunday for me. The, the other thing that, that I love about this Sunday is that we read John 1. John 1 is a creation story. John 1 is what I kind of call the theological creation, so that we can begin to understand not what happened, but that we can understand why things happen and how things happen and how it is that God participates in creation and how we participate in creation with God. It's, a, it's an important text, not just for the fact that it's a creation story, but in a lot of ways, and I am not exaggerating here, this text is one of the reasons that I'm a pastor. Um, it's because my grandmother was a Jehovah's Witness. And she read to me this, this John 1 from the translation that they used. And the Jehovah's Witnesses are not Trinitarian people. And so their version of John 1 reads, In the beginning was God and the Word, or was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little g. And so she was telling me at, I don't know, 9, 10 years old, something like that, how Jesus isn't really God, and it says so right here in the Bible. And I said, you know, that doesn't sound like what's written in the Bible that I'm familiar with. And so I went and grabbed my Bible because at the time I was in confirmation. And so I, I was actually one of those little people who read the Bible at that point. 
And so I opened up, and sure enough, it was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, big G. And this stuck with me, because for, for one reason, it was maybe the first time in my life that I really realized that we could call Jesus Lord and, and maybe have some different ideas about how it works. I had already become pretty acquainted with the fact that there were people who didn't believe in Jesus. I had a friend of mine in elementary school who was Hindu. And so imagine my parents' surprise when I came home one day and I told my parents, my friend Benai said to me, you know, that he couldn't do this thing that I was trying to talk him into because even then I was an instigator. And, and he said that if I do this, I'm going to come back with a cockroach. And I said, come back. Come back. What do you mean? Well, reincarnation. Well, what's reincarnation? Well, we believe in the Hindu tradition that you don't live one life, you live many lives. And if you do something bad, then you come back as something bad. And so mom was very stressed out that day in elementary school when I came home and asked her about that. And equally stressed out when I came home and said, you know, I'm really curious about the church that, that, my, that mom, mom goes to. Maybe we could go to one of her churches one time and see what they do. Not because I was ready to convert, but because I'm curious. And so we didn't see my grandmother for a couple years after that. <laughs> um, but probably because I'm curious and she knows that I can't help myself. But, you know, that, that event stuck with me. It stuck with me so much that my language in college, I took Attic Greek, which is the dialect before the Koine Greek that our New Testament is written in. And one of the very first things I learned well, after I started to kind of understand it, because very few people actually really understand Greek, but it was one of the very first things I learned was NRK Apolodos. Kaiholos, prostein, theon, kaifeon, or kaifeos, ankylos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And, and I figured out that in the Greek, there is a way that you can make that argument. And it's because in, in the Greek, like some other languages, if you have a definite article for something, it signifies that specific thing. And if it doesn't, Sometimes it signifies something kind of in that category, but not necessarily that specific thing. What I also realized is in order for that to be true, what my grandmother told me, that you would have to ignore the entire rest of the Gospel of John. You would have to ignore the, the rest of the prologue. You would have to ignore the context that it's in. And one of the things that I learned at that point was that context is king. The context that something is in, no matter what it says or what it does, from what's around it, you can begin to understand what that thing really means, regardless of sometimes what it what it says in print. That's one that's one reason why I, I take the Greek as something that's valuable, but I always wonder more about what the context of the verse is. And as I think about being a person of faith, as I think about what it means to be a Christian, as I think about what it means to be a Lutheran, as I think about what it means to to be somebody who's a pastor, as I think about what it means to be someone who is a person who believes in Jesus, who believes in God, who professes this faith that we profess together, it, it helps me to remember in everything that I do and everything that I say, I am providing people a context in which they understand me. And, and sometimes I provide them the context that I want. You know, I... I, I don't say some things that probably I shouldn't say unless I'm driving in traffic, for instance. You know, people who see me in traffic probably see me as an entirely different person 
than people who see me anywhere else in my life. You know, I'll just be honest about that because it's the truth. But yeah, I think we all do, right? But but this idea of context and what my faith looks like in the context of my life and what other people see my faith means is, is something that I struggle with day in and day out because I want more than almost anything else to provide people a good context to see Jesus through what I do. And so that means when I'm in the grocery line and the person in front of me is digging through their change to get that one penny that's stuck at the bottom of all those nickels, dimes, and quarters, and they take me five minutes, then the way I react to that and the kindness that I show reflects how they see Jesus in me, right? When, when I'm in traffic, God help me, the way I treat people reflects how they see Jesus in me. When, when I get home at the end of a long day, and I am not my best self sometimes when I get home at and I'm home at the end of the long day because I've talked to everybody that day and I've been doing all those things that we all do when we go to work. Even though I'm a pastor, I have the same days of work that everyone else has. How am I going to treat my wife? Am I going to be grouchy with her and, and want my time and, and be selfish about it? Or am I going to be the or am I going to try to be the person she needs to be? Some days I succeed and I give her a good contact. Sometimes I fail and I give her a less good contact. Context. And, and I think this is something that we all struggle with. We, we struggle with the idea of what I hope to be and what I am, who I think I am and who I actually act like, you know, what I, what I hope to, to be and, and what my behavior shows me to be. And the thing that we see in John that I think rings so clear that tells us about the nature of God, that tells us the context of who God is, through the theological creation that we get in John, is God is the one in whom intention and action are synonymous. There is no conflict between what God wants and what God does. They are so connected and so in unison that when God speaks it, it exists. When, when God thinks that it comes into being, what God wants and who God is and what God does are inseparable. And so when we hear these words in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, what we hear is that in God there is a marriage between intention and action that we all envy. There is a marriage between what God wants and what God does that says that what the Father wills is breathed out in the energy of the Holy Spirit and what that spirit brings to a voice is the very stuff of creation. You know, Carl Sagan used to say that we're all made of star stuff. And in the Christian faith, what we learn about creation is we're all made of God's stuff. We are all created from the very will and substance of the one who creates us. And we are made of that intention that becomes the incarnate. We are made of that desire that becomes reality. And we are made as the, the ones who are formed and born and placed into this world as the children of God's desire and God's hope and God's love and the joyous expectation that always comes with the new birth. And so the first Sunday, or this Sunday of Christmas to me, 
is a great day for this creation story. Because up until now, God has been bringing us into God's creation. God has been bringing us into God's world. Up until now, we, we have been translated into the stuff that, into the way that God translates creation. But God demonstrates in John chapter 1 that that thing that we know to be true about love, that love isn't just about one side giving and one side receiving. Love isn't just about me always getting my way, even though I sure would be more comfortable most of the time with me getting my way, which is really what love is all about. Let's, and let's be honest there and say that I think most of us would be. But the, the incarnation of the Word, in John 1.14, when we hear the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that word dwell is an interesting word because it's the same word we use for tabernacle, we tend. God pitched a tent among creation and dwell among what was created. Instead of us being translated into God's world in this context, God is translated into our world and stays his tent with us and says to us, where you are, I am. Where I am, you are. And in this, we dwell together eternally. John 1 is this beautiful coming together of, of purpose and action as we begin to understand what it is God is really doing here through Jesus. That what God does through Jesus isn't just something that he did on wind one day. It's not just something that God said, oh, it would be nice to see what the wind feels like from, from the human perspective. What God is doing is staking a claim with us and declaring a solidarity with us and declaring to us that our experience and our existence and our healing and our brokenness and our joy and our sorrow and what it means to be a human being in a real and tangible way matters. And the entire time that Jesus was in this world, living and breathing and eating and sleeping and having relationships that were good and relationships that were difficult, we see God saying to us that God loves us enough to experience what it's like to be us because what love does is enters into the world of the other person and declares a holy space there and allows the other person into our space where they can declare a holy space for them. The relationship with God, like every other relationship, goes both ways. And God is declaring that even God is not above that. That love is always mutual. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And we see this time and time again. As Jesus doesn't just share with us the happy times. You know, we, we think in John about Jesus' first miracle. My, my favorite miracle, at where at the wedding of Cana, Jesus turns water into wine. You know, we're... Where Jesus is there, and there's a potential, there's a potential disaster, and Mary badgers Jesus to do this, and even unwillingly, even Jesus listens to his mother, and and helps the bridegroom out by creating not just wine from water, but good wine from water, so that they would say everyone else serves the bad wine after they serve the first wine, but you save the best for last. As an example of what God does for us, always giving us better, always giving us more. Always giving us more of God's self so that we can experience the fullness and richness of God in new and wonderful ways. You know, but it's not just the good times that God is our God. 
I also think about in John, John chapter 12, when Lazarus has become ill, Lazarus' family friend, Mary and Martha were friends of Jesus. And Jesus hears that Lazarus has become ill. And so he does what we would all do, right? He waits three days before he leaves. Well, that's weird, isn't it? Well, one of the reasons I think, I think he waits is because Jesus realizes that if you don't prepare, then you're not going to be able to do the thing that you're there to do. If you're a firefighter and you leave the station without a hose, it doesn't matter how much water you have. It's going to be hard to fight a fire, right? So I think Jesus is spending this time in part so that they can see the glory of God later. But also in part so that Jesus can prepare for what he knows he's going to do. And what he's going to do isn't just the thing that happens at the end. And spoiler alert, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But it's also what Jesus encounters in the middle. What Jesus encounters in the middle first is Martha, who meets him on the road. Martha, who is a show-me person. Martha, who is the one who, while he is teaching, is preparing in the kitchen and making sure that everything's put up in the right way. Martha, who, if she were in a kitchen in the church, would be the one with the label maker, labeling every cabinet door, so you can make sure that this size slotted spoon is in this section of the soul warrior divider because that's the way God intended it to be and God help you if someone puts it in a different place right we, we all have these people in our lives and Martha meets Jesus in the road and says to him Jesus if you had been here my brother would not have died but even now I know that God will give you whatever we ask you know I hear these words of Martha and, and for me because of who Martha is they're almost words of accusation why didn't you get here sooner if you had, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died? And Jesus, knowing that she is someone who needs the universe to be in order, says something interesting. Well, do you believe in the resurrection? And she says, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, that the last day everyone's going to be raised up. And she's waiting probably because she wants to hear what Jesus is going to say next and figure out how he's going to put everything right. And he tells her, everyone who believes in me will never die, and those who die will live. I am the resurrection of and Jesus preaches to her the gospel that she needs to hear. That God is God and the earth is in order and everything that is wrong is going to be eventually put straight. And so Martha goes, having gotten what she needed out of Jesus, and sends Mary, who meets him in the road. And Mary's a relationship person. Mary needs to hear that she's loved, that she's cared for. Mary needs to be reassured that that things are going to be okay. She needs to be reassured that she is not alone in this. And so she says to Jesus the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I heard that not so much as the accusation I hear in Martha, but in the statement of faith that, that comes from these people in our lives who show us the grace of God by their very presence, even when they're in the midst of turmoil. We all have these people in our lives, too. The people who reveal to us God's grace, even when they're having the worst day of their lives. And Jesus asks her the question that's on her mind, where have you laid her? And she gives him the invitation that she's longing to give, come and see. With Mary, Jesus weeps. I don't think that Jesus was spending three days gathering strength to raise Lazarus. I think that Jesus was spending three days to gather strength so that he could be present for them in the midst of their suffering. And we notice what didn't happen. Jesus didn't put on the Superman cape and say, Here I am to save the day. Fear not, women. Dry your eyes because over here you're going to see the glory of God. Why are you crying? Jesus is the one who loves Mary and Martha and the family enough 
to sit with them in the midst of what felt like hell and declare that in this space the new life of God begins. Because this is what love looks like. Love is the action of the one who will sit with you in the middle of hell and help you to develop the idea that even in hell there can be new life. Even in the midst of our brokenness there can be healing. Even in the midst of death there can be something beyond it and there can be hope beyond it. Love is what God gives us so that we can hear the good news that God's love is stronger even than death. And that even though that's true, the love of God is a love that's strong enough to sit with us in the midst of our worst hour and not cheapen it with empty phrases and empty words that are designed to just make things go away. That's what love is. Love is the one who created us and calls us and claims us. And in the midst of our brokenness and pain and shame and doubt and wondering how things can never be again, be good again, plants the cross and says, here is where new life begins. Because in the kingdom of God, new life begins at the point where we have lost all of our control and all of our hope. And the only way we know to go on is to trust God. Paul writes, in our weakness, God is strong. And as we, as we think about what it means to be creations of God, you know, what it, what it means to, to hope for the Savior that God has sent us, the Word that's incarnate with us, pitching the tent, the Word that's incarnate among us, declaring the space where He walks to be sacred space, because all that God touches is sacred. As we, as we think about what it means for us, people who find ourselves so often in the midst of transitions that we don't know what to do with them. You know, what, what do we do when, when someone that we love tells us that they have cancer that it's not able to be cured? You know, what do we do when, when pastors leave and new pastors come? What do we do when we have friendships that that break that we've had our whole lives and we don't know how to fix it. What do we do when we're in the midst of times in our lives where we figure out that we have been that jerk that we know how to be because we've been impatient with our spouse to the point where now they wonder whether we're even the person they want to be with? You know, what do we do when our children don't do what we want them to do and they live their lives in a way that doesn't jive with what they, we think they should be doing? What do we do when we realize that there is really so very little in our lives that we have control over. And we find ourselves in the midst of that instant where our cover has been blown and we are revealed to be powerless. It's in that moment where we recognize the presence of God with us that in our lack of control, God is in control. When we don't know where, which way to go, God is leading us by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night through the wilderness, through the wanting, through the waiting, through the wondering, and giving us rest because the God who loves us has declared that we are worth standing with through the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. So our, our question is, we walk out into this world, that 
need so desperately to hear that there is good news, that there is hope, that the crazy people we're all afraid of don't have the final answer. And some of them are politicians. You know, where we, when we walk out into a world that is hungering and thirsting to hear that we might not be in control, but we have, we have knowledge of the one who does, where we walk out into a world that needs to see in the context that we help to create the light and the love of Jesus born into the world. How is it that, that we as people who follow Jesus help other people to see Jesus in the things that we do and the things that we say? How is it that our, in our everyday actions we are people who bear Christ into the world showing them the new life and love that God has in store for them. How is it that, that we as individuals do this? How is it that we as Peace Lutheran Church, how do we bear the light of Christ into a world that, that needs to hear this good news so desperately? I think, I think all of us, every congregation struggles with this. And every congregation has a different answer for how this works. Because every congregation has its own context in which we preach the gospel to the world around us. But I, I think this is the same question that we all struggle with. How is it that we are answering the call of 